Hey, I want to welcome you to the Marty McLean podcast. This is episode five. Today's topic, what in the world is going on? Now, if you're like me, you've experienced a lot in the last four months. You've been part of a worldwide pandemic. You've been sequestered in your homes. You've been told what you can and cannot do to a certain extent. You have also experienced the threat of murder hornets. We have seen riots. We have seen looting. We have seen statues and monuments torn down. And now, if you live in the southeast United States, you're dealing with a huge dust cloud from the Sahara Desert called Godzilla. It's amazing what all has transpired in four months. And, you know, as we are dealing with all these events, it's, it's like, okay, I wonder what's going to happen next. And I, you've seen the meme of people looking in the book of Revelation and saying, hey, just tell me what chapter we're in. I can understand that. It's like stuff that may happen once every few years, it's happening in the, in the span of just a few months. And it's a lot to deal with, it's a lot to process. And I know that if, if you're like me, uh, you, you want to have comfort and you want to have confidence. You want to be confident that, uh, hey, everything's going to be okay. And you want to have confidence as you go forth from this point. Completely understand that, completely get it. Well, what I'm going to talk about today is I'm going I'm to kind of put myself out there. Now, just to let you know, if you, in case you don't realize it, I am a white, heterosexual, Christian male. And in our society with intersectionality, uh, that's, in some people's eyes, that's not good because uh, I don't get the benefit of the doubt. And there's a reason why that's the case, the way that peop some people are approaching our culture and our society today. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But I want to address what's happening with the protests, with the riots. And I want to talk about Black Lives Matter. Now, I understand that uh, for me, as I've just identified myself, what I'm about to do is I may be touching the third rail, but I feel like this is something that I need to do, and I want to do it from a Christian point of view. From a personal point of view, me personally, I want you to know, I believe all men are created equal. I, I get that conviction from the Bible. It's like it says in Acts 17, 26, we all come from one blood. One race is not better than the other. I believe that we've been created in the image of God. We all have this sin problem. And we better get this sin problem dealt with by accepting Christ and His death on the cross on our behalf because we're all going to have to answer. Remember, I've said it before in a previous podcast, either you pay for your sins for all of eternity or you... You believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross on your behalf for your sins, and He made that payment for your sins on the cross. And so you don't have to pay for your sins for all of eternity because Christ, bearing your sins upon His body on the cross, He died. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Christ died with, his, with your sins upon Him. Boom. He paid your sin debt. Now, I believe regardless of your race or ethnicity, that's the route you've got to go. And you've got brothers and sisters in Christ as, as a believer... I mean, it's a spiritual family. It's a spirit, doesn't matter what color, ethnicity you are. We're brothers and sisters in Christ if you're a believer in Jesus. That, that's how I, I believe life is to be lived, from the standpoint of being a follower of Christ. So that, that's, that's how I'm coming at this. But what I see happening today in our nation is that people are wanting once again to put us into boxes. They want us to be classified by categories and as part of what they call identity 
politics. Now, I start reading up on all this stuff, and I start looking into identity socialism. Yeah, I said identity socialism. There's a guy named, his last name is Marcuse, Herbert Marcuse. Some would say that he has replaced Karl Marx. That instead of having a, a socialism based upon economics and pitting the, the proletariat against the bourgeoisie, now you have identity politics where you have to create ill will and turmoil between people of different races. Not only races, but also genders. Not only genders, but also sexual orientation and whatever other types of ways that they can divide people. There's a purpose behind what's going on. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Black Lives Matter. Let me just say, what happened to George Floyd was wrong. I'm all for equality under the law. I believe everybody should be treated the same under the law. The, the grievances that people have, I understand the legitimacy of, of the grievances. And they need to be addressed, and they, they need to be corrected. And I think that Congress is looking to take some steps on a national level. Uh, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina introduced what's called the Justice Act. And from what I can read about it, uh, as it pertains to no-knock warrants and chokeholds, uh, police behavior, I think it's good. it looks like it's a pretty good piece of legislation, but it is an election year, and when you have an issue that's that making work for you more as an issue than as a solution, then there's some playing politics that don't want a resolution, at least not before the November election. And I understand that. That's just how politics works. But I understand the grievances that people have, and I, most Americans I, are goodwill. I think a majority are, and any inequalities under law, we want to address them. We, don't want, we want people to have equal opportunity. We want people to be treated equal under the law. I believe that's just that's the American way, and, and it's biblically, from a spiritual point of view, from a biblical conviction, that's the way it should be. You should treat everybody as an individual. It doesn't matter what race or ethnicity. They've been created in the image of God. They bear the image of God. That's why people are of worth. And that's, that's the approach that I have with this. So please understand, when I address the organization that's known as Black Lives Matter, I'm going to approach it as that organization because I believe there's some nefarious things going on with Black Lives Matter as an organization, and I, and I, I want to address those. The, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, her name is Patrice Cullis, in a video from 2015, she said about her and her fellow organizers, quote, we are trained Marxists. Think about that. We're trained Marxists, which means they don't like the system that we have in the United States. Not, I'm talking about the economic system. Trained Marxists. Uh, if you go to their website and, and you click, you know, who they are, what they believe, Here's one of the things they say they believe. This is from Black Lives Matter as an organization. It says, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages. They collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. They continue. We foster a queer-affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather, the belief that all in the world are heterosexuals. So here they are. They say we're against 
the nuclear family, the Western idea of what a family is, and we're, we're against heteronormal behavior. Now, the people that have legitimate grievances about what happened to, to, uh, in Minneapolis to George Floyd, there's a lot of people out that, that were legitimately protesting. They don't go for this. This isn't representative of, of who they are. And so you start to understand, wait a second, the protests have been hijacked. There, there is a, a, another angle being taken here. There, there's, there are people with nefarious motivations that have gotten into the mix of what all is going on, and you have organizations like Antifa, which is also a, a Marxist-style organization. Some would say they employ the French revolutionary-type tactics. They are, you know, they're not in it for peace. They're in it for a revolution, for an overthrow. And so legitimate concerns are one thing, and I, I totally, I, I, I'm on board with that. I understand the legitimacy of concerns and equal treatment under law. I'm totally for that. I understand there, there are legitimate grievances. Yes. But what is happening with this organization called Black Lives Matter they got uh, they've got a different agenda, and I think we need to understand that. As a matter of fact, one of the guys who is the head of the Greater New York Black Lives Matter, he's a, he's the president of Greater New York. Here's what he says. His name is Hank Hawk Newsom. He said this in an interview. He said, "If this country doesn't give us what we want, then we will burn down this system and replace it." That doesn't seem like a really good thing to do. I mean, you, 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 if you don't get what you want, then we're just going to burn the place down. That, that, that doesn't sound right. Also, Black Lives Matter, they are for the national defunding of the police. They wanted to defund the police departments. Now, the majority of police officers and law enforcement officers, they're great folks, do a wonderful job. They're of all races, ethnicities. Just, they are, and they do a wonderful job. And they won't to defund the police on a nationwide basis that or anywhere like they're doing in Minneapolis they just voted to in a 12-0 vote to do away with to defund the police and instead they're going to have a quote department of community safety and violence prevention sounds like that's going to work really really well so i think what we understand what i understand is that black lives matter they might have a a different motivation than just wanting some grievances addressed. Um, and I, I think we need to, to understand that. One of the things that they also talk about is cisgender privilege. And, you know, I, I looked at that and I'm thinking, uh, what, what are they talking about when they say we... Uh, talk about a self-reflexive and that they do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege. I'm thinking, what is cisgender? What is cisgender? Well, cisgender is that is when you live according to your biological sex. So yeah, I was born male, and so I live life as a male. So they believe that because I was born a male, I live life according to my biological gender, or as they would say, the gender I was assigned at birth, that I have advantages over a a transsexual. And so I need to check my cis, I need to check my cisgender privilege. 
here's something you have to understand. When they start telling people to check their privilege, there's, there's not just white privilege. There is cisgender privilege. There's male privilege. There's all these privileges when you start dealing with this intersectionality. There, there are all these privileges that you have to, quote, check. And you have to be careful about microaggressions. And so it's like, what in the world is going on? What, what, are, what are we actually dealing with? It's like what uh, one Black Lives Matter activist said. His name is Sean King. I'm sure you've heard about Sean King. Uh, he wants to tear down every statue of Jesus that depicts him as a white European and do away with all the murals and all the stained glass that depict Jesus as a, as a white as a white European because he believes that is repression, that uh, that, is, that is wrong and it needs to be torn down. Now here's the deal. You've watched as well as I have of statues that are being torn down. And the people that are tearing down the statues, it's like they don't really know history. For instance, the Emancipation Monument in Washington, D.C. They're wanting to tear that down. And, and you've got to understand that that was the money that, that was used to build that monument was given by freed slaves. Booker T. Washington spoke at, at the dedication of that memorial. There are others that have nothing to do with, with oppression or anything like that. Their statues are being are being torn down. And so you, you start thinking, okay, what's the deal with statues and monuments? And then if you start looking into all that's going on and this Marxist push, you realize, hey, that's, that's kind of out of the Karl Marx playbook. Here's what Karl Marx said. He said, in communist society, the present dominates the past. So the present's going to dominate the past, so what do you do about the past? Well, you kind of got to get rid of it. And you have to be able to put your own, your own interpretation of the past or, or, or have the present to the exclusion of the past. Let me read a quote to you from 1984. And people are, you know, people are always talk about uh, Brave New World, Animal Farm, 1984. But it, this stuff is, you know, getting a little bit scary. Here's a quote from 1984 written by George Orwell. Quote, every record has been destroyed or falsified, every book rewritten, every picture has been repainted, every statue and street building has been renamed, every date has been altered, and the process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. And if all others accepted the lie which the party imposed, if all records told the same, then the lie passed into history and became truth. Who controls the past, ran the party slogan, controls the future. Who controls the present, controls the past. Isn't that interesting? You want to control the narrative. You want to do away with history. People don't know history, then you can, you can frame them up from this point onward. Let me just uh, go back and say this about the protests that we have witnessed if you, if you look at the people who are protesting, a lot of times you'll see that a great majority, it seems like, are white. They're like the Antifa types. 
and you have Antifa that has joined in with Black Lives Matter, and you have these people that are actually, you'll, you'll have instance, you can see it on social media where, where these people who are Marxists are trying to tell people how they should feel about their, their racial identity. And it, it, it's just, it's just mind-boggling as though they know better than, the, than that person. And so you realize when you start seeing this stuff play out, you're like, okay, there's some stuff going on here that just isn't what it should, should be. There's some stuff going on here that is a different agenda. There, there's something, and you, you see that people take advantage of when there's a crisis. People take advantage when there's some confusion. And I, I think what, ha what is happening now is we have forces that are acting upon our nation that are seeking to change the fundamentals of our nation. And they're seizing the moment, and they're seeking to make change. And they're taking advantage of the opportunity. The playbook that they were going from was written by Herbert Marcuse. He championed a concept known as repressive tolerance, or some would say liberating tolerance. And here, here's, what, here's what happens. Liberating tolerance would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left. So what you have with with that type of tolerance, repressive tolerance, is that when it comes to, say, liberal ideas, you are very tolerant. But when it comes to conservative ideas, you're intolerant. And if, if somebody is promoting something from a, say, from a biblical point of view, that's intolerant. But if somebody is promoting something from a, let's say, a, a liberal point of view, that's not biblical, a liberal point of view, then we've got to accept that. We, we need to be tolerant of what, what they are doing. So it, it's not a level playing field. It is a way to flip the tables. It, it's the way to, to change public opinion. It's the way to change the direction of a nation. What you want to change, you're against one side and you're for one side. You are intolerant of one side, but you're tolerant of the other side. That is, a, that is from the playbook. That, that, is how you, that is how you create change. And the way you have to do that is you have to have this identity politics. You have to keep people in, in, their, in their box. And when people get outside of the box that you want them to be in, uh, you just totally discount them. You, you, you don't, they don't count anymore, so to speak. Kind of like, uh, say, a Ben Carson or a Clarence Thomas. They're, they're not in the prescribed box, so they don't count. Or Sarah Palin. Sure, she was... Uh, vice presidential candidate, she was a woman, but she doesn't count as a woman because she was not from the left. Had she been from the left, then it would have been a big deal. And let me tell you, this is the way that this stuff plays. This is the way that this stuff plays out. For instance, and this is uh, from a writer. This is one of the writers that I've, I've availed myself of. Here's what he says about uh, liberating tolerance, as you would be intolerant towards the right, intolerant toward the, toward the left. When George W. Bush was president, and when people would, would be against maybe something he was doing with the war on terror, it was said that dissent is patriotic. Dissent is patriotic. They're patriotic. They're dissenting against the president. That's patriotic. 
But then when anybody dissented against President Obama, that was considered bad. That was, you're racist. So if you dissent against Bush, you're patriotic. If you dissent against Obama, President Obama, you are, you are raced, you're racist. And that's just kind of, that's how that worked out. I'll tell you another way that it worked out. And you remember during the, uh, the debate over same-sex marriage, when CEOs were, were kind of in the spotlight about how their company was going to stand on the issue, and, and you remember all the, uh, the pushback that Chick-fil-A got, uh, CEO Dan Cathy, when he came out and unabashedly said, hey, I, I believe that marriages would be between a man and a woman, based upon sound biblical doctrine. And also on, on the other side, you had Howard Schultz of Starbucks, where he said, hey, Starbucks, we're going to support same-sex marriage, and even told a shareholder, if you don't like it, uh, you can sell your shares. Now, everybody was like, you know, in the media, applauding Howard Schultz. He was like, looked at, hey, man, that man took a stand. He was willing to tell that shareholder, you go ahead and share, you know, sell your shares. But Dan Cathy was not looked at in the same way. And as a matter of fact, a couple of years later, uh, Forbes interviewed Dan Cathy about everything that happened, his, you know, his role as a CEO. Or, and during this Forbes article, it's from 2014 from Forbes magazine, uh, the, the name of the article, this is how Forbes headlined the article, Gay Marriage Still Wrong But I'll Shut Up About It and Sell Chicken. So basically they were kind of paraphrasing what Dan Cathy said, hey, I still believe that marriage is, is to be between a man and a woman, but I just won't say anything else about it. I'll just sell chicken. Whereas Howard Schultz with Starbucks, he was able to say whatever he wanted to, and, and he was applauded. So you see that it's an uneven, it's an uneven playing field. And that's called repressive tolerance. We'll be very tolerant of one viewpoint, but we're intolerant of another viewpoint. It is not a level playing field, and that's how you change public opinion. That's how you, you start altering a society. But in order to do that, you have to be able to put people in groups. And people have to stay in those groups. And you have, and it's not that every viewpoint is legitimate. No. When you have repressive tolerance, your viewpoint is the only viewpoint that's legitimate, and you don't have any tolerance toward anything else. It's kind of almost like a totalitarian um, way of doing things. There's just the party line. And that's what we see kind of playing out in our culture, especially with the cancel, cancel culture today. Uh, if you, that's why when I said I was going to address Black Lives Matter, you know that people will jump all over you if you say the wrong thing, if you don't mean, you know, you, you don't mean what comes out or it's said the wrong way, you know that, boom, it doesn't take much. If, if you're not on the, the correct side of something, then you'll be canceled. There's no mercy. And that's one thing about this whole repressive tolerance thing. It is so unmerciful. Unmerciful. I, and I, the way things are being done right now in our country, in our, our, in our culture, there's no mercy. You know, if somebody says something, even if I don't like what they say, and if they realize that they said something uh, that, that is wrong, and they admit it, yeah, I shouldn't have said that, and that was wrong, it's like, you know, I've been forgiven of a great debt. I can forgive you. And we can move on. You know, Jesus even told that parable 
about it. This guy who owed, owed his master a whole bunch of money. Matter of fact, he owed him so much, there's no way he could possibly pay it back. And, and the master is going to have him put in jail, going to have his family sold and everything. And he said, have mercy with me. He pleaded for mercy. And the master felt sorry for the servant. He said, okay, I'll forgive you for everything you owe me. Your slate is clean. And then that, that one who had been forgiven of so much, he went and found somebody, a fellow servant owed him just a minuscule amount. And that fellow servant couldn't pay him. And he showed no mercy to his fellow servant. And so when the master found out what his servant had done to the fellow servant, he was greatly displeased. This is a parable of Jesus in, Mark, I mean, in Matthew chapter 18. And Jesus said, hey, you've been forgiven. You need to learn how to forgive others. It's very, very important. So this, all this cancel culture where, you know, even some of these Hollywood types that I don't agree with them. They're liberal and I don't agree with some of the stuff they've done. They've, they've made a mistake. And they've gone back and said, look, I should not have done that. That was wrong. It's like, hey, you know, you can be forgiven. You can be forgiven. But what is happening here is there is such an agenda underfoot. There's a, such an agenda in our nation with, with those who are pushing for the type of change that they want. There's no room for forgiveness. There's no room for redemption in any way, fashion, shape, or form. It, it is amazing. So repressive tolerance. I, you know, when I, when I do these podcasts, there's no way I can, I can talk about everything. But I, I, what I want to do is I like to just kind of pique your curiosity about some things. And, and, and I want to do these podcasts where, okay, you hear something I say and you're like, okay, I need to look more into that. Or I need to do a little bit of research on what he said because that's kind of interesting or I need to know more about that. that that's really, to be honest with you, what I want to do with these podcasts. I, I, want, to, I want it to be used to stir people up to make people inquisitive about the right things, to make people go investigate what's right and what's wrong and, and, and come to some good conclusions. So remember some of these terms, repressive tolerance, identity politics, identity socialism, microaggression, all these things, they're being used. A lot of times some of this can be used to make people just be quiet. You can believe what you want to, just don't say anything about it. And that just ends debate. If you ever wonder why some people, it seems like they don't want debate, they don't want a, a lively discussion, they just want you to accept what they say and, and be quiet about it. That's part of this repressive tolerance. Now, just to kind of up it a few notches, there's some stuff going on, not just the, from the Antifa types down on the ground, but I'm talking about there's some big geopolitical stuff going on with all this as well. They had the World Economic Forum in June of this year, earlier this month, and it's in Davos, Switzerland. And, you know, anytime all these guys, these world leaders get together, uh, they want to get together to lecture us about the, the climate change, uh, all this stuff that we need to do differently as they fly in and out in their private jets, you know, and they live in their you know, how many square feet house and, you know, but yet they want to lecture us about climate change, which kind of does not go over too well sometimes. But anyway, aside from that, the head of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, here's what he said about the events that are happening with the coronavirus, uh, how it's affected, uh, impacted all the economies of the world. He says, quote, every country from the United States to China must participate in every industry from oil and gas to tech must be transformed. In short, we need a 
great reset of capitalism. That's how these leaders, such as the Secretary General of the United Nations, Prince Charles, uh, the head of uh, Bank of America, the head of, of BP, uh, the head of uh, MasterCard, all these guys are there, and here's what, here's what they say. We need to use this opportunity, and you know they'll never let a crisis go to waste, as a great reset for capitalism. They, they want everybody's economy, he says, from China to the United States, everybody's got to be a part of it. But he didn't stop there. He continued on. Here's what he says. The world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies, from education to social contracts and working conditions. Now, you know, I'm in, you know, I'm kind of inquisitive. I want to know, hey, social contracts, what exactly are you talking about there? You look up social contracts and there are unofficial agreement between, uh, there are an unofficial agreement shared by everyone in a society in which they give up some freedom for security. Huh. So you want to deal with the economy and the way you're going to deal with the economy is that uh, we're going to give up some freedom in order to have some security. You know, if I read my history right, a lot of times that, or should I say most times, or maybe every time, that doesn't end well. It does not end well. And as, as a Christian, once again, remember, I'm a, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. I do believe that we are headed toward a one-world government, when we are headed toward what some would say a cashless society. And people have been saying this in Christian circles for, for decades, and my goodness, aren't we close to all this happening. Can't you see how that could easily happen? Especially when you get these world leaders today and you get these people there that are with all these financial organizations coming together and they want to plan out for the nations. Now, they've not been, this, this is the problem I got with the World Economic Forum. They've not been elected. This is not representative stuff. There are people who are executive CEOs, I don't trust the Secretary General of the United Nations as far as I could throw him. I just, I just don't trust the United Nations, to be honest with you, because, I mean, you look at like who they put on committees like any, any of the committees, uh, Human Rights Committee. Look at the nations on the Human Rights Committees. I, I just don't trust the United Nations. And when, when the United Nations is there, when all these uh, CEOs of all these banking companies when they all get together in a particular place and they want to set the agenda and they're talking about it being a, a great reset and talking about redoing social contracts. I don't know about you, but that makes me a little bit nervous. It makes me a little bit uneasy. And also, you know, Prince Charles was there. Here's what Prince Charles said about the meeting. Quote, We have a golden opportunity to see something good from this crisis. It's unprecedented shockwaves may well make people more receptive to big visions of change. He continued, It is an opportunity we have never had before and may never get again. That's Prince Charles. Now, I think the American Revolution made it where, you know, the king or the prince over in England, they could not control our destiny. But I, I would have, it looks like the guy's coming back. Another King George. Kind of surprising. So here we have, they want to have a reset, which if you, if you follow these things, there's got to be a bringing down of America. 
You've got to bring down America. And when you start talking about make America great, again, that goes against the, glo the globalist vision of what they would like. And so you can see why there's a lot of pushback, why there's a lot of turmoil, why, why things are the way they are politically in, in, our, in our nation and, if you will, in, in the world itself. So if you go to the book of Revelation, if you go to the book of Daniel in the Bible, you'll see about the Antichrist, you'll see about the one world government, uh, some would say a, a cashless a cashless society. And let me just read to you from Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 and 17, speaking uh, of the end times. It says, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. You know what his, na you know what his number is, don't you? 666. You, know, you remember growing up when somebody had that lunchroom number. What's your lunchroom number? 666. Oh my goodness, that's Damien. You know, you, but in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it said you've got to have the mark of the beast. Now sometimes we think, okay, how's that going to work out? Well, did you know, even today, in China, they have a social credit system. I don't know if, if, if you're aware of that. They have a, a social credit system in China. And if you want to do much in China, you've got to have a good score. They have this app that they have, that they use. And they are, tabs are kept on every citizen. And the higher the score, you have on your social credit system, the easier it is to get a loan or free medical care or discounts on your heating. That's what it says in a Fox News report. Now, if you have a bad score, uh, you can get banned from buying airline tickets or train tickets. Uh, it, they can make it where you cannot take out a loan or buy property. Now, the way you get points deducted from your social credit system or your social credit score uh, you can get points deducted by defaulting on loans, traffic violations, selling faulty products, playing too many video games, or smoking in non-smoking areas. You can actually get blacklisted over there. Now, you talk about something that's Orwellian. That's, that's the social credit system in China. China has that now, so if you want to buy something, they can control that. They can control that. And so here's the deal. If, if you want all the security that Davos, the World Economic Forum, which they're saying that we're going to have to renegotiate these social contracts, if you want, quote, their you know, safety or whatever it may be, then you're going to have to give up your liberty. There's a lot of liberty. You're going to have to get up, give up a lot of freedom. You're going to have to give up. And when you see what they can do over in China now with this social credit system. I don't know about you, but I'm like, I don't know if I want some bureaucrat sitting behind a computer telling me what I can and cannot buy. I don't know if I want uh, some bureaucrat sitting behind a computer deducting my credit score, my social credit score. And so now I'm going to be limited in what I can do, and, and they're going to be able to control my behavior. You're talking about big brother. Oh, yeah. So you, you need to understand Liberty, I believe, is at stake. And we have those forces in our nation that are trying to take advantage of, of situations, of crisis, 
of whatever it is in order to, to push our nation toward a certain direction, toward Marxism, toward socialism, toward more and more government control and less and less liberty for people. And I don't know about you, but I don't think that's what I want. I, I don't want it at all. But let me say this. We know that it's going to eventually get to that point. If, if you read the Bible, as a Christian, I know that eventually there will be a one-world system. It's what it appears like in, in Revelation in the book of Daniel. There will be a one-world system. There will be a way of buying and sell, selling that uh, you've got to go through that system. There, there's, there's going to be a lot of control. You're, you're going to have no liberty, and you're going to be under tyranny. It just direction. But I, I, I don't want to go quietly in the night. I think God's put believers here on this earth to be salt and light. And we are to make a difference. Let me re read something to you. You know, back it seems like back in the 80s. I think probably the Cold War had a lot to do with it. But that ended um, with the Berlin Wall and all that. But there seemed to be a lot more of people anticipating the return of Christ. Then you had the Left Behind books, and then, you know, I don't know, some snooty evangelicals started making fun of the Left Behind. That, you know, anyway, it kind of made people look, people that, uh, on people that talked about the return of Christ, kind of, it seemed like to me, I, I could be wrong, but it, but it seemed like to me that, uh, people did not anticipate the return of Christ as much. But now with all these events happening, I think we really need to start thinking, hey, Christ is going to return. He said He would. If, if Jesus said He was going to come back, I, I really believe He's going to come back. And let, let me just kind of read this to you. This just won't take but a couple of minutes from a book that I, I wrote. It said, There have been many false predictions concerning the return of Jesus Christ. For some reason, there are those who think that they have been blessed with the inside scoop. However, they all end up deluded and disappointed. Some of those who followed the false predictions of Edgar Wisenot in his 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1988 maxed out their credit cards because they thought they would be raptured and therefore not around to pay their debts. Such thinking is incredibly misguided. Believers should always live with the awareness of the imminent return of Christ. At the end of the book of Revelation, the word Maranatha is written. This Aramaic word translates, quote, Even so come Lord Jesus. It is a cry for the return of Christ to set up His earthly kingdom. The word was used by the early church as a greeting to motivate one another to stay strong in the midst of a dangerous world. So any discussion of the second coming should motivate people to give their best for God and not just run out the clock. The great Martin Luther was purportedly once asked what he would do if he knew that, he, that the world was going to end the next day. In response, he said, quote, If I knew that the world would end tomorrow, I would plant an apple tree today. This statement should encapsulate the motivation of every believer. Live every day with all you have. Give God, give God your best every day. And so when we talk about, hey, Christ could return and we see things are being set up where it could happen. I mean, the geopolitical world is being set up where it could happen. Let me just encourage you, if you're a believer and you're listening, you live with all you've got. You, you try to make a difference. You give it all you've got until you die or the Lord calls you home 
or, or the Lord comes back, whatever happens, however the old heart quits ticking on you, you keep giving it your very best. Don't stop. We're, we're called to be salt and light here on this earth. And let me also say, if you're listening to the podcast and, and you're not a believer, you know, it really doesn't believe if, it really doesn't matter if you believe Jesus is going to come back or not. It's not going to change the fact whether or not he comes back. I believe he's going to come back. I look at all the fulfilled prophecy. If you're not a believer, if you've not accepted Christ, there's an offer of salvation. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You don't have to, you don't have to end this life not knowing Christ. You don't have to end this life facing eternity paying your sin debt. Christ paid that debt for you on, on the cross. The sins of the world were laid upon Him. And He died. The wages of sin is death. Christ died with our sin upon Him. If you're willing to accept what He's done on your behalf and, and you're willing to ask Him for forgiveness and invite Him to be your Lord and Savior, give yourself to Him. What the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You call upon the Lord. You ask the Lord to save you. You tell the Lord you believe that Jesus died on the cross and by faith you embrace Christ asking for forgiveness for your sins. I guarantee you, it'll make a difference not only in your life today, but for all of eternity. I want to thank you so much for being with me today for the Marty McLean podcast. I know this has kind of been a little bit rambling, uh, touched on some, some issues, but I want you to give due consideration what we talked about. And, and remember, look up some terms, do the research yourself. You've got the internet. You can find out information. Uh, don't be dumb. We've got too much available for us to not know what's going on. God bless you. I hope you have a great week, and I will see you next time on the Marty McLean podcast. <laughs>